So in your class at U of T uh, Medical School, how many students were there? 259 students in my first year class. 259 yeah. students. Yeah. How many black students were there? One. <laughs> how did you feel about this? Not good. <laughs> Definitely not good. Go, go, go. Let's go. Check. She ain't gotta tell me what to do with it. I already know. Been knew I had a juice with it. Y'all ain't ready though. Outside, got the vision going. I'ma make it go, go, go. You ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of Attila TV. Our guest for today is the sensational Chica Stacy Oriwa. So Chica is currently a medical school student at the University of Toronto in the System Leadership Innovation Program. And before that, she was a McMaster, did her Bachelor of Health Science at McMaster University. Mm-hmm. And then when she's not, you know, trying to save lives and cure cancer and do all these amazing things, she's also a writer and a poet and a champion for diversity. So Chica, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was quite the introduction. Yeah, I like, <laughs> so I like the guest people love for <laughs> Yeah, that's so kind. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. The first question I always like to start off with is Chica mm-hmm. at 16. Yeah. What were you like when you were 16 years old? I'd say that I was a little neurotic. Mm-hmm. I was definitely very tenacious from a young age. And at 16 years old, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor. I actually knew that I wanted to be a doctor long before 16. But at 16, I was actively working towards trying to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. I'd say that um, at that age, I didn't exactly know what the pathway was or what the route was to getting there. I knew I had a get to a good university and, and I knew ultimately I would need to um, apply to medical school afterwards but um, at that stage my understanding was just I just need to be a really really good student I need to excel in the sciences and the maths and all that stuff um, and so that's where I put a hundred percent of my energy and I was a bit of a perfectionist and I just wanted to get the best marks and be like the best student possible so that's a little snapshot of, just a little snapshot of myself at 16. Um, so a bit of a nerd, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would say it's probably a good. You said example. a word that like just I picked up on. It's just sticking in my head. Yeah. You know what the word is? Neurotic. No. Yeah. Why did you describe yourself as neurotic? Because I was a very meticulous individual. Um, I set myself to a certain academic standard of excellence that. Uh, in in which my behaviors, whether that be like the way that I studied and and how I studied, how frequently I studied and the way that I took my notes, it was just things had to be done in a certain methodical way that um, I feel like a lot of 16 year olds don't necessarily approach studying or approach academia. Mm -hmm. And so I I called myself neurotic just because looking at the tendencies that I had from a young age and kind of the foundation that I laid for myself at that time, it was a bit obsessive in in terms of how I approached school and how I approached my grades and I approached academics. And so, I mean, ultimately, I think it served to my benefit to get me to where I am today. But I also feel like looking back, could I have been a little bit more chill when it comes to school and Mm -hmm. probably still made it as as far? I'd say that's probably likely. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that too, because I feel like with a lot of like super high achievers, you know, they always say like, you know, when I was younger, like I really like sacrificed a lot to get to where I am now. And it's always like, you know, would you do it differently? And I feel like people always give this talk answer, no, no regrets, blah, blah, blah. But like maybe like looking back now on like your really intense approach you had, Mm -hmm. what are some things you might have done differently? Do you think you would have done anything differently? Certainly. I feel that um, had I not been so anxious about school, I feel like that would have served to my benefit now. Just because I find that um, a lot of type A individuals and a lot of people that go into medicine tend to be very... um, sometimes can be very anxious people because we're so obsessed with having the standard of perfection that I really wish from a young age that I learned that it was okay to make mistakes and that it's not necessary to be perfect in everything in order to achieve your goals and that I really wish that I had failed a lot sooner Mm, than when I started to face failure later on in in my undergrad um, and and trying to get into medical school and that really being the first time that I confronted failure and not knowing how to really deal with it and process it and not internalize failure and not see it as as the opportunity to develop and grow and evolve, but instead internalizing it, internalizing it as I am a failure and I will never amount to anything because I have not reached a certain standard. And that's kind of what perfectionism does. And so I wish that going back, if I had just learned that lesson at a younger age, I could have saved myself so much more 
strife and anxiety and all that I experienced. Oh, okay, that's interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back to that. <clears throat> I think okay. my feeling. I'm gonna come back to that. Okay. But I'm back to you at 16. So one thing I always ask people is like, whenever I hear people say, "Oh, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be an engineer." Yeah. We're both child, we're both children of immigrant parents. I think we're both Nigerian. Yes. Yes. How much of you wanting to be a doctor was like your genuine passion, or you just maybe doing what you thought was expected of you? That's such a good question, and it's honestly still a question that I grapple with to really? this day. A little bit, yeah, because when I look at my um, skill set, I would say, or my passions, my inclinations, I love writing. Yeah, we're gonna get to that. And I think there was a large part of me that wanted to be an, an author. Not to say that I can't still do that. But I wonder how my journey would have un- unfolded differently if my parents would have, you know, when I expressed an interest in writing from a young age, if they would have nurtured that in mm-hmm. a sense um, and said, you can be an author. You mm-hmm. don't have to be a doctor because mm-hmm. I expressed various passions and interests from a very young age. Um, so around the same time I realized I wanted to be a doctor was around the same time that I knew, like, I love writing poetry. I love performing. I love doing all of this. And so there's a part of me that wonders, you know, that dichotomy of my existence, which one would have prevailed, hmm, dichotomy, I love that one. you know, yeah. <laughs> like which, which one would have prevailed if, if I didn't feel like medicine was the only path that I would be supported in. Yeah. And not to say that I regret medicine. I, I don't regret medicine. I think in terms of, of the practicality of being a writer versus being a doctor, like one is one is one provides more, more se- well, yeah, <laughs> one makes more money depending on how you do it but one also provides a certain level of security that i think especially being the child of immigrants mm-hmm. they they understand yeah. the fragility so like when of you, when you, when you told so, cuz i've actually had this conversation before like to other yeah. guests and the lures like when you told your parents you know oh you know i i think i might want to give first of all did you ever tell your parents, oh, I think I might want to be a writer when I grow up? Yeah, I did. And then what was the reaction? No. <laughs> it was, you are not, they, they just flat out said, you can write. You can write as much as you want. And I still do. But that's not going to be what you pursue in this life. Because it'll be a life of suffrage, more or less. And so for my, you know, I, I honestly vividly remember this conversation. I think I must have been like five, six, maybe seven years old and realizing, oh my gosh, I love writing. I love doing this. I love creative thinking. I love all of that. And my dad just saying, you can be an author, but you must be a doctor first. Oh, wow. So you can do all of that. And it's like, I, I kind of appreciate that now going back because I think right, like looking at my life now, I'm able to have both sides. It's hard, of course, because something must be sacrificed. And I think at this point in time, my my writing per se obviously does does not occupy as much of my life as medicine does. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm glad that now I get to have both. Whereas I feel like if I had focused on my writing more throughout like my academic development, throughout high school, whatever may be, I don't think I can necessarily say, well, I can also be a doctor on the side. Because you can't. The foundations of trying to get into medicine is laid very early. Mm-hmm. It's, it's laid a lot earlier than undergrad, right? So, um... Yeah, just keep talking, I'm, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. So, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm grateful that my parents were a little more stringent with me earlier okay. on. That's interesting. Um, so... So now let's go back to, so you're, you said you're neurotic in your own words. You've been neurotic, very driven, <laughs> or let's say hardworking. Hard, yeah, let's, let's, let's replace neurotic with hardworking. But, but then, um, yeah, so when you came to apply, time, um, time for you to apply to schools. What to schools medical were you, school? No, like undergrad. Oh, to undergrad, undergrad okay. So what schools were you looking at? Why did you choose McMaster? So, that's like, oh my gosh. I feel like I'm dating myself here with <laughs> how little I actually remember about where I applied. Okay, I applied to Western Health Sciences or Biomedical Sciences, I think. I applied to U of T and I applied to Mac and maybe another one. I honestly don't quite remember how many universities I applied to. I know that I got into all the the programs that I applied to. Um, I think I, I ultimately chose McMaster because I wanted to be close enough to home where I could go home if I needed to, but also far enough away that I could start to develop my independence and not be overly reliant on my parents. Because I'm, I'm originally from Brenton. I should make that clear to contextualize it. So um, I really love that. And also knowing that um, McMaster has the programs that are quite... Um, 
prominent and, and, and have a lot of notoriety, I'd say, in terms mm. of their abilities to nurture and develop budding medical mm. students, physicians. Mm. So for me, that was another real attractive thing that Mac had that I felt like other schools um, did not, didn't, don't necessarily have that certain mm. connotation with them. So I actually didn't know about like apparently McMaster Health Science is probably arguably probably the most competitive program to get into for undergrad. Yeah. Very very competitive. So yeah. If there's like a young aspiring medical student, pre med student, like grade eleven, grade twelve, right now watching this, mm-hmm. and they think they want to go to McMaster Health Science, go to medical school. Yeah. But let's, let's specifically focus on the undergrad application for now. Okay. What advice would you give them? Oh wow! I'd probably just say be your authentic self. I think that there's a lot of. Um, misconceptions or people tend to write their application thinking that I need to write this in a certain way that would be palatable to the person mm-hmm. who's reading it or or they think that the person that is re- that's like the file reviewer has a certain narrative in their mind that they want to read that like this is a prototype of, of the health size student that we want and like I know from being a file reviewer that I was always um, most what piqued my interest most in the applicants was kind of those that you can really tell that they're being authentic, that they're not trying to to drive a certain narrative that sounds very um, like standard and very yeah. you know. So it's like be honest about who you are as an individual. I mean, it's great to talk about like you know I volunteered in a hospital for the last four years of high school, and you know I want to be a doctor. I want to be, like that's great, but what is it that defines you as an individual? What, so what is, did you put in your application? Oh my god, I think I talk. Well, I talked about poetry. You talk I, about poetry in your medical school application. I talk about, I, yeah, I talk, I, I mean, So it's the writing me. comes back, wow. The writing is always something that has never left me. That is, like, I honestly, and I will talk about writing in my residency application. Like, it yeah. is, it's what I feel like is so integral to my identity. It's what is authentic to me, is what I think makes me unique, is what makes me stand out, mm-hmm. is the fact that I know that writing is something that has helped to develop me not only as a poet as a writer but i think it's also helped to develop the other aspects of my identity that lend to a career in medicine Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. yeah let's talk about failure okay so you mentioned uh what you say again you said that you were perfect in high school you wanted to be perfect never experienced failure then you experienced your first bout of failure around medical time to apply to medical school yeah yeah so So i had to maybe your what was your undergrad experience like Mm -hmm. and oh actually i'm actually curious to know did you did you did you personally change or did you have like did you grow or change in any way between high school and university? Yeah, I mean, I would hope that everyone undergoes like some kind of development. It's such a crucial age for a lot of people. It's your first time where mm-hmm. you're away from home, or even if you still live at home, there's a certain amount of independence that you get within the home, but also within but the like academic specifically, setting. Like, how do you think you changed between grade twelve or university? I would say that I mean. <laughs> Um, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'd say that I definitely started to come to an understanding of my own convictions and my own values. Mm -hmm. And that's really when my own sense of advocacy started to ramp up. So there were certain things that I started to notice that I wanted to advocate for. Um, like women's reproductive rights was something that I knew that in high school being, you know, having a a Catholic upbringing and going to a Catholic elementary school in high school, there were certain narratives and and values that were kind of embedded within the curriculum and within the culture of my high school that when I finally got out of that and I started to attend education that wasn't religiously bound, I kind of developed almost a free sense of thought and being able to think and form my own opinions. So that for me was real crucial in in university. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things I've actually been thinking a lot about recently is the whole idea of like, what do I generally believe versus like what was put into my head? Yeah. You know what I mean? I feel like definitely yeah. for me, like, great, like first and second university when you're like you're by yourself in your dorm room thinking you're like, do I actually believe this? Or like did people like in my life put this into my head and like yeah. I should have just accepted it? Exactly. So that's, that's interesting. So that was a big change for me was challenging everything I thought that I knew. Mm-hmm. And that that like tension that cognitive dissonance was very. Cognitive dis- I love that word. Yeah, love that word. <laughs> it was a. Uh, it was very. Uh, it was very challenging to work through, but then ultimately developing my own sense of identity and my own sense of conviction was probably the best thing that came out of undergrad for me. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Failure. Failure. Let's talk about that. Okay. 
So you said that you were experiencing your first bout of failure when you applied to medical school, like your first real bout of failure. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say that it was actually trying to write the MCAT because I had to write the MCAT um, like more than once. And so realizing that, you know, not that I felt like everything came easily to me because that's not true. Mm -hmm. Like I said earlier in the podcast, like I was always a neurotic person. So I always worked very hard. I was always very meticulous. And that that formula of working hard Mm. and and the output being you get what you want, that was always the formula for me. So then working hard, working really, really hard on something and then not getting the result was the first time that I ever really experienced failure. And I did not know, I felt like my entire identity was challenged because I feel like, especially wanting to be in medicine, a lot of your identity is surrounding your intellect, is surrounding how smart you are. So putting in all of this work and not getting it back made me challenge or made me like question myself. Am I really that smart? And if I'm not smart, then what skills and what talents do I have to offer to the world? And so really learning how to separate my ability to perform on a certain standardized exam from my ability to be a good clinician in the Mm -hmm. end was something that took me a long time to really learn how to develop. And then ultimately, I applied to medical school twice. So the first time I applied to medical school, I didn't even get an interview. And that was like devastating to me because you put in all this work once again, you put your whole life into something and then you get nothing back in return. That for me was so devastating. And watching my classmates go off into medical school and realizing that okay, I have to apply again and I'm now going to have to take a gap year between like university and medical school and trying to figure out what am I going to do with that. And then, so like really encountering that failure and I feel like the mental health consequences that it also has to become so anxious and so in your head and, and really having your identity challenge is such a huge, I feel like it causes so much internal conflict mm. that... I wish that I, I had learned earlier that it's okay to not be perfect and it's okay to fail. And it's really your tenacity that builds character. And I'm so glad. I actually am so grateful that I didn't get into medical school that year. I'm grateful that I had to rewrite the MCAT because now, especially in medical school where you are tried and tested constantly and there is more failure in medical school in a number of different ways, I feel like I'm able to deal with it and, and, and overcome a lot more easier now as mm-hmm. as opposed to before. Mm-hmm. So we're think, talking about U of T Medical School mm-hmm. and as you said you replied and as you, you said you failed the first time, the second time you're successful. Right. <clears throat> now one of the things that got me, that I, actually the first time I really found out about you was through obviously the BSAT. Mm-hmm. So in your class at U of T uh, Medical School, how many students were there? 259 students in my first year class. 259 yeah. students. Yeah. How many black students were there? One. How did you feel about this? Not good. <laughs> Definitely not good. Um, it was a shock at first, just because I had actually chosen U of T particularly because I knew that they had the the Black Medical Students Association, and so for me, How being you a Black Medical Students Association with one student like there in it. Yeah, I mean, like 23%. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think that they did like they did not expect for it to be like just one because the year above mine had five um even though the year two years above me only had one so like the 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 normal fluctuance is between like before bsap was between like zero to one students and then they had kind of the outlier classes in which they had like five or like more than five um but those were more outliers where the average was between zero and two um but i think that the there is more uh they had a from my understanding like a, a bigger expectation that my year would have more black students just because the year above mine had more so like we were kind of hoping that that it it would follow that trajectory um and when it didn't i think it came as a surprise to like everyone because i was i was shocked um i was very disheartened i find i found it very isolating and i still from time to time do find it quite isolating um especially because you know there's a certain level of solidarity that's present when you have another individual of that shares your identity Shares your identity. Yeah, and can also someone that you can turn to in solidarity when there are circumstances that, you know, have certain racial underpinnings that make you uncomfortable or certain things that are said to you as they are very commonly said to you, you know, irrespective of whatever field that you're in, whether it's medicine or law or or engineering, you're going to encounter it. Mm -hmm. And so being able to have someone else that's there that, that you can, you know, 
turn to. It doesn't even have to be a best friend, but just someone that you could say, like, listen, this person said this and it was whack. And, like, yeah. they can be like, okay, yeah, like, I can definitely commiserate. I can empathize with you. Mm-hmm. So not being able to have that sense of community was very uh, challenging mm-hmm. and still is quite challenging for me. Um, so I, I often had to rely on the upper year medical students um, as well as the lower years beneath, like, the years mm-hmm. uh, under me. Um, but yeah, it's it's probably just the feeling of feeling isolated and then also that idea of perfectionism. So when you're a minority in medicine, the idea of imposter syndrome, I think, is, 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 is amplified. Uh, you know, like, it's yeah. so much it's so much more than just the baseline of, you know, nobody feels like they should be in medicine the first, you know, X amount of time in medical school. Everyone's kind of kind of feel like they have to establish themselves in a certain way. But when you're a minority and there are these implicit biases against you, and then you you feel further segregated, you feel further isolated. The idea that you have to fight to prove that you deserve to be there is amplified. Mm-hmm. So, so actually, random question because I was thinking the other day I was talking, asked my sister about it's like, what's the definition of minority? Because for example, I think that like, um, I think like so for example like if. Um, Actually, no, I want to ask a question. The other question I was going to ask was, um, so you were talking about U of T Medical School. Mm-hmm. So that, one of the things I actually really respect about you is that, of course, you know, a lot of times, especially, I definitely experienced the same thing too, where most of my life, I was probably like maybe the token black guy. Mm-hmm. So class of 100, class of 500, maybe one or two black people. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I really respect about you is the fact that you, like, you know, you didn't just like have this problem, you also tried to solve it, the BSAT. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit more about the BSAT and why you started that program? Sure. So I actually didn't, I didn't start the BSAT program. It was well in the works before I'd gotten into medical school. Um, I think that's kind of a misconception that people know that I am like a, an ambassador for it and that the year that it came out was also the year that I did a lot of publicity for the program. So people kind of make that connection and think that I started it. But in fact, like it was, I, I have to give the ownership over to the black faculty at U of T who made it all possible who for years were trying to bring about this program because they realized that there was a chronically low number of black medical students Mm -hmm. i just had the extreme honor and privilege of being able to you know it's kind of i call i kind of call it like a it's kind of like a a harmonious alignment because the year where i was doing yeah i need to write a book all these words you're throwing out man (laughs) thanks um because like the the year that I was the only black medical student was also the year that they were bringing out BSAP. So it was perfect to be able to to, to pair my narrative mm-hmm. with their cause because it was a shining example of why we needed the cause. Mm-hmm. So I, I just had the, you know, mm-hmm. the exceptional privilege of being able to speak to the program, about the program, and, and being able to educate people mm-hmm. in the media, in person, at talks and speeches and stuff of, and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, and just being able to kind of dispel a lot of the myths about the BSAT program. So what it is, it's, it's the Black Student Application Program, and essentially, to boil it down, it's a separate application stream for Black applicants where we're just trying to attract more black applicants. It's not a quota-based system. We're not lowering the standards. They need to get the exact same criteria as the mainstream students. So same GPA, same MCAT score, same extracurriculars. Everything needs to be the exact same. It's just that we integrate individuals from the black community into the file reviewing process as well as the um, as well as the, the, the interviewing process so that you can alleviate a bit of that implicit bias that's there mm-hmm. inherently and that black individuals can feel safe and comfortable throughout the entire trajectory of medical school from from the day that they submit their application to when they interview, to when they're accepted and then have that continued arc of support for black students. So, so it's really just more of like a magnet stream. Yeah. That's the way that I view it at least. Yeah, I totally get the initiative behind the BSAP, you call it, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel like as a good host, I always have to ask the counterpoint, right? Sure. And I feel like someone watching this, or maybe someone might be thinking to themselves, maybe even when they read, read about the BSAP, thinking to themselves, okay, this is all well and all, but it's not fair that I have to work hard. You know, let's say I'm not a non-black person, let's say whatever race I am, whatever gender, whatever. It's not fair that I have to work hard in medical school, I have to work hard to get to medical school, I have to study hard too, I have to go to mm-hmm. all these things. Why do you get an easier route than I do? Okay, well, that's... Uh, that is the common misconception. So the, for those individuals that really think that it's necessarily an easier route, I would really challenge them to really analyze it on a global scale. So the re- what BSAP is, is truly an equalizer. 
you know, the fact that there are so few black medical students is not a reflection of black students not trying hard enough to get in. That's not what it's about. It's the fact that there, is system, there are systemic barriers that preclude and discriminate against black students from a very young age, and I'm talking preschool, that, tr that alters the trajectory of their professional lives and really leads them away from careers in the STEM fields. So as young as five, six, seven years old, ch black children are, dis are disproportionately more likely to get labeled as having behavioral problems, more likely to be more harshly reprimanded for the same behavioral um, missteps as their non-black counterparts, so more likely to be expelled or suspended for lesser offenses. They're more likely to be streamed into educational streams that are below their capability. They're less likely to be exposed to individuals who can assist them and provide mentorship to them throughout medicine. So for those people who necessarily have had to work hard, I would ask them to challenge themselves. What set of privileges have been provided to you that have made your journey easier? Mm -hmm. And it's hard for people to look back and acknowledge their privilege. It's really hard check for them. Privilege. But it's, it's important to check your privilege because I'd say a, a good chunk of my class have parents who are physicians or who have close family members who are physicians. If you do not have insight into the medical school process, if you do not have social capital, if you do not have financial capital, you are disproportionately more likely to not even have exposure or, or even be successful in applying to medical school. Mm -hmm. So if you look at all the barriers that, it, that are in place statistically for black people, this is not an easier stream. This is an equalizer. And they should just be grateful that they didn't have to go through the barriers that the average black person has to go through to even get into medicine. Mm. So I would just say, check your privilege, see what's there, see what's been provided to you. You know, I was competing against people who had research from high school. I didn't even know research was necessary until my third year of university. Mm. So I'm competing against people who knew exactly how to get into medical school from the time they were 14 because their parents are doctors and all their friends are usually affiliated in some way or another mm -hmm. with people who have family members in medicine. Mm -hmm. So they have the, those alignments. Mm -hmm. That is not commonplace in the black community. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And that's why you see less than 1% of Ontario doctors are black physicians. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Is that because black people aren't smart enough? Is it that we're not trying? No, we are trying. It's just that we were not provided the same privileges, the same leverages that other non-black individuals are statistically more likely to have been provided. Wow. So that's that's my answer to that. And that's facts by Chika Oriua. <laughs> um, you, you, you brought up some good points. I don't know which one to go with first. Let's talk about, um, so you mentioned something interesting about how, you know, some people from like the age of 14, they already know exactly what to do in order to get into medical school. Mm -hmm. You said you didn't even know what research was until your third year of university. Yeah, I mean, I knew what research yeah. was, but I didn't understand or necessarily yeah. have the insight into how necessary it was to get yeah. into medical so school. So my question would be, knowing what you know now, yeah. let's say for a young chica, 16-year-old chica, 16-year-old yeah. Tommy, who thinks they want to go to medical school. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, what are some things that people can do to increase your chances of getting to medical school? Find a mentor. That is the single best piece of advice that I can give to someone. And it's so hard in the black community because because there are so few black physicians, it's mm -hmm. hard to be able to get access to a mentor that you might know your friends and family. They don't have to be. And that's that was going to be my, my next point. You don't have to have a black mentor. But from what I'm saying is that a lot of people gain mentorship through a certain connection, mm -hmm. whether it's family or whether it's close family friends. And so if you're black, your family's going, to, nine times out of 10, your family's gonna be black as well. And if, in my case, neither of my parents knew a researcher that I can do research with, mm -hmm. but a lot of the people who I went to school with, they had a certain connection, whether it's family or mm -hmm. family friends, who knew someone that could take yeah. them on as so a let's research student. Because I, I really like the tactical, like the details, right? Yeah. So if, for example, you mentioned a couple of things, research. Yeah. So like, if someone wants to go to medical school, you think it's important that they do some sort of research experience? I think invariably having exposure to research is valued on a medical school application. I mean, it's, it's a section of a medical school application, so it's something that I would highly encourage. I, I wasn't overly involved in research. I mean, I, I had some research when I applied to medical school. For me, it wasn't it wasn't the selling point of my application. 
But in, if I could go back, sixteen-year-old Chica, I would tell her get involved in research early. So walk me through this right now. So let's say yeah. I come to Canada. Let's like let's do the absolute worst case scenario. So that way, yeah. if you cover the worst case scenario, we can take care of everybody else. Yeah. I come to Canada today. Mm. My, I'm an orphan. I came as an international student on a four-year scholarship. Yeah. First year of undergrad. I know absolutely no one. I have no connections. Yeah. I need to build a mentor. How should I go about doing that? That is a that is a tricky situation. I mean. Okay, if you were at U of T, for example, there's something called the community of support. And that is particularly for underrepresented minorities in medicine who want to get into medical school. So traditionally, Black, Latino, Filipino, and Indigenous populations, they can go through the community of support and they will align them with certain mentors and research opportunities. And I think now community of support is starting to grow and branch out into other schools. So I would say trying to find that, that area where they are supporting marginalized and, and underrepresented minorities, which I think most schools at this point have some kind of foray into that. That would be my best piece of advice. And if you can't find some kind of community of support that can assist you, then honestly, sometimes you have to be brazen and you have to go up to a professor and say, yeah. listen, this is what I want. I want to get into medicine. Is there someone you know that is doing research? And that's a really hard way to go about it yeah. because there's probably 50 other students that are thinking the same way but i mean there comes the tenacity and sometimes you just have to you have to do it so i'm glad you mentioned that and a little pro tip for you guys listening or watching this right now so our very first guest on the tv was um emily my friend emily chen oh yeah yeah you know her i feel like i do know her i'm sorry emily if i feel like <laughs> yeah. we've met and i don't remember you but i feel like i mean she she goes to u of t right yeah, yeah she's in yeah. u of t met i definitely have heard a lot about her but i don't think i know her personally okay, so anyway emily chen was the very first person i interviewed on the show okay and i remember one of the things she was talking about was she said that when she was in grade 11 she i think i don't know if she was a google or the yellow page or whatever it was she actually cold called every single like dentist pediatrician eye doctor optometrist like not every single but almost all of them in oakville and said you know i'm interested in going in this career do you mind if i shower you for a day so one thing i one piece of advice i could always give people is especially now that we have linkedin yeah. I don't need to call people anymore. Just if you have a LinkedIn account, mm -hmm. you know, I want to be a doctor when I go. Do you mind if I follow you around for an hour? Or do you have someone who does research you can for, um, link me up with? Mm -hmm. So th I think things like that are like basically reaching out to people you don't even know that well is mm -hmm. a good way if you don't have connections. Yeah, it is. And like I said, your mentor does not have to be a black person, mm -hmm. right? If you are black, your mentor does not have to be black, especially since we haven't reached that critical mass as a black community in certain professional areas where we can support all of the people who have the same aspirations. So you need to be willing to branch out and and be able to find that camaraderie and that mentorship relationship with someone that might not share the same identity as mm -hmm. you. Because there are people who are excellent allies who are willing to support individuals from whatever race that they're from, mm -hmm. right? They exist. And there is nothing wrong with tapping into that allyship mm -hmm. and being able to find that resource. So I highly encourage that. I mean, cold calling and doing all that stuff, LinkedIn, whatever it is that you got to do, hustle. just do it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's hustle. We got to yeah. hustle and motivate. Like, that's exactly what hustle it is. Hustle and motivate. Um, so another thing that's really cool about Chica's story is that my friend told me this word. Shout out to Kate Hall in Theory University. Intersectionality. Yep. Which mm -hmm. is basically the idea that, so not only do you have the black experience, mm -hmm. you also have the female experience, yeah. which are both two underrepresented minority groups. Yeah. So can you talk a bit more about what it's like at the intersectionality of being a black and being a woman? And some of the, and then also we've yeah. talked about your black stuff, you do for black advocacy. Yeah. Right? I know you also do a lot of work with women advocacy, reproductive rights. Yeah. Talk about that as well. So being at the intersections in and outside of medicine is challenging. In medicine, it's so difficult because people instinctively and inherently assume that you're not the profession that you're actually in. So throughout medical school, especially in clerkship, I've had a number of experiences where either it's patients or it's other people in the field who have just, you know, either said, are you the nurse or are you the janitor or blah, blah, blah. Or I would say that, like, you well, know, this happened to you before. Yeah. Oh my wow. goodness. Yeah. People that I've told them I am a medical student and they will ask me, oh, is that like a nurse's technician? Are you, you know, going to be a physician's assistant? Or are you, and I, when I tell them, no, I am going to be a doctor in 11 months and whatever days, like, it, it shocks, yeah, exactly. It shocks people. And so, and you know, I've, I've had experiences with patients who've literally didn't accuse me of, of lying about being a doctor, mm -hmm. you know? So 
encountering that and encountering the sexism in the fields that a lot of women face in medicine. I have a question about that. Mm-hmm. I always find it interesting. Um, I always find medicine really interesting because I feel like we live in a very like patriarchal society where like most of the high paying careers are dominated by men, banking, yeah. finance, tech, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But medicine is one of those professions where I think medicine is actually more women than men. So the fact that you said there's a sex in my friend, I find that really interesting. Well, there's the medical classes that have been coming about in like the last decade or so tend to have a more female skew. This is true. But when you look at traditionally medicine well, like even maybe in the as high a career, and stuff like that. yeah, like, I mean, if you look at all the leadership positions in yeah. medicine, the they are predominantly male, predominantly white male. Okay. And then... If you look at just like historically, medicine has been a field that's been dominated by men up until the last decade. So all of the doctors that you see in the hospital, like all the older generations, they're mostly men, Mm -hmm. right? And then if you look at all the leadership positions, like I said, they are mostly men, they're mostly white men. And so, and you know, even still to this day, certain areas, certain residencies, irrespective of, of the past decade of having more women, like, so there are less, female surgeons, for example, mm-hmm. certain areas of, of medicine are still very highly male dominated. Mm-hmm. And those tend to often be the more higher paid specialties. So can you talk yeah. a bit more about um, your work with women's reproductive, um, women's advocacy, and women's reproductive rights and like stuff like that? Right. So I'd say that my advocacy is, is more so just around um, women's rights per se. So I, I do a lot of keynotes. I do a lot of talks and seminars talking about specifically my experiences as a black woman because I feel that in the in the in the normal commonplace narrative mm-hmm. of feminism the feminists of color are often marginalized and the experiences of black women are often marginalized so the space that I tend to occupy is to bring forward the narrative of women of color specifically mm-hmm. so my advocacy is not it, it really is at the intersections I really I try not to divorce the two. I try mm-hmm. not to only advocate about race and only advocate about being a woman. One, because I don't have a choice. I'm both. Yeah. And so you get to, oh, I'm black today, but maybe woman tomorrow. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I don't have a chance. I don't have the the option of separating the two. So I go to a lot of women's talks. I go to a lot of women's conferences, women's leadership conferences. Um, I gave the keynote at Women's College Hospital for International Women's Day. But at each of those places, I talk about the experiences of black women in medicine because it's a narrative that is often not discussed. And it's different. Yeah. It is different. Yeah, it is different. So that's why, I mean, that's that's the feminist in me. And that is the way that I, I choose to advocate as a woman in, in the field of women's rights. Another point you mentioned about at the, close to the beginning of the year that I found really interesting. You were talking about how your big advocate for women's reproductive rights, which I'm assuming you mean as pro-choice. Yes, that and is then, a stance. But then I growing did. up, I went to Catholic high school as well. Yeah. Pro-life. Right. So how do you sort of balance that cognitive dissonance where you grew up, oh, pro-life, 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 but you actually believe that for women, they should have the right to choose? Right. Well, for me, honestly, when I went to university and I was no longer under the bubble of Catholicism and I was able to critically analyze the things in the world and my own beliefs and my opinions. Not to say that I'm like a faithless person that, you know, and, but like, I, I still do have certain uh, religious beliefs, but for me, my stance is that I believe that a woman has a right to do with her body what she chooses. And the second I made that revelation to myself that cognitive um, dissonance more or less disappeared. I no longer, like, I I don't have any conflictions about it. I mean, and I still, you know, I still live in a very Catholic home. Like, my my mom is very Catholic. But I have my beliefs and I stand very staunchly by them. And, you know, a lot of, like, I the the area of medicine that I want to practice in ultimately is women's health. So I believe that going into that area... Not that every single person that practices women's health needs to be pro-choice. You don't have to. But if you were going to be a physician, in my opinion, that specializes in women's health, I feel like it's important to be able to respect the autonomy of the woman's body. Mm-hmm. So that is the stance that I stand behind. You ever have this conversation with your mom about, oh, you know, do you ever have this conversation with your parents? About, no, not really. I mean, no. But I, I feel like 
my mom knows what it is. Like yeah. <laughs> those are my. She knows, these are, she knows what. Yeah, she she knows that those are my stances and my beliefs. And I don't even necessarily think that she's like. Not that she's not pro-life. I just think that ultimately my mom also stands by a woman's right to do what is necessary for her in her life, right? And I feel like there's so much conflation that happens when it talks about women's reproductive rights. Like people think that, oh, you must be supporting, you know, third trimester termination for no reason. It's like, no, there are so many medically indicated reasons why people cannot carry through a pregnancy. Not that I think that that's the only, you know, justifiable reason to have a therapeutic abortion or anything like that, but... Okay, so where we left off, you were talking about people, some people think, you know, they conflate, you know, pro-choice with like third trimester abortion, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's like there's like very medically clear indicators of when abortion is the right thing to do. Right. Or when it's, I mean, I feel like when, when you get into the idea of like what's right and what's wrong and what's moral and what is immoral, I feel like there, especially in medicine, you know, there are certain things that are medically indicated for the mother's safety. And, you know, if the child is not viable outside of the womb and if, if they are going to have a short and very, you know, suffering filled experience for the time that they're here, there are certain there are certain times in which abortion is very much medically indicated. But even outside of that, I still believe in a woman's choice to make decisions for her own body, for what is right for her at that time in her life. And I also still believe that, you know, whether or not abortion is legal, it's still going to happen. Mm -hmm. Women have always, always, always had abortions. They will always continue to have abortions. It's just up to us as a society to determine, is it going to be legal and safe or is it going to be illegal and unsafe? So that's kind of my stance. (laughs) That is my stance on women's reproductive rights and you know, I stand firmly behind it. I will always be a big believer in a woman's right to choose. Awesome, I like that. So now we come to the third part of the interview, the final third. Okay. The last trimester, if you will. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> yeah, so let's, I want to pull this up. So we've established that you are a medical doctor, advocate for black rights, advocate for female rights. Mm-hmm. But what we haven't talked about, I think I know where you, I think you know where this is going. Uh, a little bit. Is something supposed to come up on the screen? Yes. That's good. I like when the tension builds like this. This is quite tense. (laughs) I don't see anything. No, it's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Okay, okay. I see my name. Yes. (laughs) Oh my god. Chica Stacy Poet, writer, public speaker, advocate. So, first of all, the picture. Let's start with the picture, actually. Okay. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, explain the picture, like, what this represents. Okay. So, this picture was taken back in, like, 20... I'm going to say 2015. Maybe 2014 to 2015. Um, It was when I was on the Hamilton Youth Poets, and when we were going to Nationals, I think we had a photo shoot, um, and this was taken as I was performing one of my poems. Mm -hmm. And that's why my face looks like that. But I'm now realizing out of context. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've, I hope people can tell that I'm performing. I'm, I'm even wondering, like, imagine if I hear you speak at a conference in like medical school and I go on your Twitter and I see this. It's like, but no, I, honestly, I actually like it. I like when people show their personality. Yeah. It's just funny because you have like, you in a stethoscope in the background <laughs> and you're here doing poetry. Yeah. Which is actually a good segue for, um, <laughs> how do you find, so like, another thing I find really cool is like the whole idea, like, you know, we're talking about left brain, right brain. Yeah. So mm-hmm. maybe, I, I always forget, is left brain like the analytical part? I think left brain is the creative. Okay, so let's. And right brain's analytical. Okay. That could be totally wrong, yeah. but I think, I, I think that's the right way. Apologies <laughs> to the world if that is wrong. But, uh. <laughs> okay, like you're a doctor or anything. But anyway. <laughs> so, um, one thing I really find cool is that people you know who are like really analytical, but they want to tap into their creative side. Mm-hmm. So how do you find time to like write poetry and then how do you find time to like write poetry and like pursue your creative endeavors while balancing your medical school life? Oh gosh, honestly, it's been so hard to be entirely honest with you. It's been so challenging, but I find that it's the only thing that balances me and gives me energy to be able to continue to do medicine because medicine can be very all consuming and it can be something that drains you naturally. Um, and I needed to find something that fills me back up and poetry fills me, writing fills me, advocating and public speaking, these things fill me. So for me, it's, it's a method of self-preservation. So, I mean, I write 
sometimes in the middle of the night when I should be sleeping. I know this is <laughs> this is, goes against everything that I counsel my patients on, but you know, I, I write in the early morning, I write late at night, I kind of write in the in the odd hours when I'm post call when I just finished a twenty six hour shift. I'll go home and I'll feel the most inspired to write. And then, so when you write, do you just do poetry? Or do you want do you like write novels? Do you want to do short stories? What kind of writing? Um, I kind of I like writing everything. I honestly I like I like writing poetry. I've written a couple. Like I I wrote um, a musical last year for the University of Toronto. I, I co-wrote it with one of um, one of my friends. We wrote the U of T uh, Daffodil Musical 2018, and it's a musical that's put on every year for like the last 100 and something years. Um, so we it's, we spent nine months writing it, yeah. and it was over 100 people involved in the production, and we sold thousands of dollars in tickets. It was it was amazing. Um, so like I, I love writing in every permutation that it takes. So whether that's poetry or musicals or short stories, essays, I love writing speeches. I mm -hmm. love writing keynotes. I mean, ultimately, my goal is to write a book as well. So, like, I just writing is something that has always been in me. I also wrote articles. Like, I yeah. I love to write articles. articles. <laughs> I think that's over here. We have. Uh, what is the one I'm looking for? Yes. Oh, this was a this was a an interview type thing. I think I did. I hope I can find it. This one from Woman Black. Yeah. That. So that's my uh, that's my spoken word piece. Mm -hmm. Where is this? I don't even know where this is from. This is your T website. Oh, okay. and this is you when you're on the morning show. Oh yeah. It's a little celebrity over here. Oh gosh, no. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So what else was I going to say? So yeah, so I guess now I'm kind of rounding it up now. Yeah. Um, a question I love to ask people is what I call sure. the one, the five, and the twenty-five. Okay. Let me bring this to you off actually. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of distracting to look at my face <laughs> blown up in the background. Okay. One, five, and 25. Yeah. Let me guess where this is going. Where, I think so. Where yeah, do you see okay. yourself? What would you like to be doing a year from now, five years from now, 25 years from now? One year from now, I will be Dr. Chika Stacy Oriwa, MD, MSc, because I would have officially graduated yes. from both of my concurrent programs. That's Doctor of Medicine, Masters of Science in Health Policy Management and Evaluation. Yes, nice. So that's where I expect to be one year from now, preparing for medicine or pre preparing for my residency, hopefully moving into uh, somewhere. I don't even know where I will be moving or where I'll be in a year, but I, I'm excited that I'll be starting the next chapter of my life finally getting paid you know all the good stuff that comes at residency um five years from now how long is residency it's five years okay. so, so hopefully i'll be done residency. yeah so let's say like five years from now after residency after my residency um i hope to be practicing like actually practicing in the fields that i want to be in um or i mean one of my biggest goals is to always continue on with my advocacy and with my writing what a lot of people don't know and this kind of this kind of is like cheating because this is like the beginning of my five-year plan but also you said 25 years is like the next step so my my long-term plan is to become a writer like a like a screenplay writer or like a tv going. writer yeah i like i literally want to be the next shonda rhymes and i already know that that's going to be that's my scandal, destiny right, right. like she writes scandal she writes Grey's anatomy she writes how to get away with murder she, she's black right she's black. she is yes she is a black woman and wow. she has written and produced all of these amazing shows and i just think that i'm like her like i just think i am the the next shonda rhymes that sounds really egotistical but you know, man, i know people have a lot of confidence which is amazing I mean, I just say that because I'm one of those people that believes in the power of manifestation. Agreed. So I need to put that energy into the universe in order for the universe to give yes, it back to me. Yes, that's what I always say. Yes, you know what I'm saying? Yes, like, yes, yes, I need yes. to say it. I need to believe speak that I'm going And also, you know, the best part is... Speak it to existence. 10, exactly. 10 years from now, you're going to win an Oscar. And I'm going to play this clip back and say, I told you so. <laughs> oh, that's my awesome. God. Well, I just... Honestly, like, I just... That's what I've been saying since day one of medical school. Anytime they ask me, where do you see... Because they ask this a lot in medicine. Where do you see yourself in 10 years what do you think you're going to be doing it every single time i'll be a doctor but i will also be working with shonda rhimes i will be living in hollywood probably and writing you know tv medical dramas because that is to me the ultimate synthesis of the things that i love i love writing i love medicine bring them together and that's what i plan on doing and i plan on continuing on with my advocacy and being outspoken and being a public speaker and giving motivational talks and, and motivating the youth and mobilizing the black community that is what ultimately 
you know, one year from now, five years from now, 25 years from now, that that's what that's all going to culminate in. Mm-hmm. You know, so those are my dreams. Those are my aspirations. And just excited to see how the journey unfolds, you know? Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Wow. So you mentioned that you want to write a book. Yes. What kind of book? <laughs> she just knows she was writing books. She doesn't know what kind of book. Okay. Well, I mean... Who's to say that it hasn't already been in the works? I oh, mean, okay. nobody knows. But I mean, my my goal is to you know I kind of want to share my story because I believe in the power of narrative. So, a memoir at some point. But yeah, that's, that'll probably be the book that I end up talking about. Maybe like a an, an advocacy book somewhere along the way, something like that. But did you read um, Oprah's Becoming? I, Michelle Michelle, Michelle Obama's, Obama's Becoming. Yes, and I also went to her her talk in Toronto, and it was the most inspiring night of my life really it was incredible yes tell me more yes. about that like how, how was that oh my gosh she's just the, the embodiment of everything that i aspire to be as a person as a woman as a black woman she's just everything that i aspire towards she just handles herself with such grace such intellect such you know the caveat though you know the caveat about why i think um the caveat i think is like if you look at the michelle obama story because i read part of the book as well and you mm-hmm. look at obama she actually had to sacrifice a lot of her career for Obama's career. Right. And it's one of those... It's, and, and this is actually something I think about a lot because I have two younger sisters as well, right? It's right, like, right. You know, if, especially someone like you, very super ambitious, and you know, mm-hmm. if you want to get married one day, whatever, it's like that balance between what you want to do with your career versus mm-hmm. like, you know, having to sacrifice and all that kind of stuff. Do you, ever, do you have opinions on that? Do you ever think about that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, like, I'm currently dating someone who understands the woman that I am and knows that... You know, I put a whole, I mean, everyone's put a whole life into certain things, right? But I've worked so hard to get to where I am today Mm -hmm. that, of course, you make compromises for the person you're with. But it's also really integral for me to be with someone who wouldn't want me to sacrifice really crucial parts of my identity and my success so and i and i know that for michelle obama she had to give up a lot like she was a lawyer she was a ceo of like a hospital and like doing all this stuff and she gave a lot of that up to to allow um, barack obama's presidency you know i in terms of would i want to give up a lot for my own spouse's success I don't know if that's in me necessarily. And honestly, it's not even fair to ask you to do that either. Like, exactly. That? Exactly. And I mean, like, I feel like their situation's so different because, like, what they did for black people and for, you know, in general, you know, becoming the first black family in, in the White House, like, I can understand the psych- sacrifices that she made. Like, that's understandable. But for me, like, if someone told me to take a backseat on my career to further their career that, you know, didn't have such high stakes in terms of, like, the presidency of the free world or whatever... Um, I don't know if I would necessarily be able to do that because I feel like it's often asked of women for us to sacrifice our personal goals in order to allow a man to continue their career or to, you know, be the breadwinner, all of that. I don't really believe in all those roles, as you might be able to deduce from this conversation. Um, I, you know, like, I think it's, there's nothing wrong with having a matriarch. There's nothing wrong with having the woman be the breadwinner or the woman be the one that's more heavily invested into their career. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So for me, it would really have to take a lot for someone to ask me to take a step back for my own career to further theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, but why can't we both succeed? You know, so, like saying, there's there's enough. Everybody like, can eat. Every everyone can eat. Everyone can shine. There's enough seats at the table. Thank you. Like you know, children can look up and see my mom is great. My father or my you know my parents, whatever whatever sexes they are, they can both be great. And of course, there's certain people that have to sacrifice. But I believe in this day and age that if you love someone and if someone loves you and they believe in you, you believe in them, you can make it work for the both of you guys. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully when my boyfriend listens to this, take notes because it's like we're both going to shine and hopefully neither of our careers have to take a compromise or take a backseat. So. I think everyone can agree to that. Yeah. Um, so now on a lighter note, a question I like to call, what are you currently obsessed with? Now I feel like you're, you can't give one of those like, I want to save the world and I want to do this, I want to do yeah. that. Yeah. That's like light, fluffy, like, Instagram channel, YouTube, and be a new restaurant, you discover a new recipe, oh my workout, gosh. gym, book, podcast. What are you currently obsessed with? I am, oh my goodness, what am I obsessed with? That's going to sound so horrible, but I love Animal Kingdom on Netflix. Okay. I've been binge watching it with my boyfriend, and it is such a good series. <laughs> I'm also indefinitely obsessed with tacos. I started making 
homemade tacos and that's like my post-call treat so when i'm finished like a full 24-hour call in the hospital come Wait, home 24-hour call call yeah so, so you're on call or you're like at the office for 24 hours not the office I'm, I'm i'm in the hospital he's hospital for 24 hours yeah so i was on call on saturday on the labor and delivery floor i just have a question why do doctors do that why don't I just do 12-hour shift honestly i think that there's like a lot of like issues that like there's a lot of like medical errors that are introduced the more handovers you have and so like for patient safety even though it's kind of counterintuitive because who wants a doctor who, mental health yeah like who wants a doctor that hasn't slept in a day and a half like nobody wants that um but it's uh i yeah i can't really comment much on why it is that it is but i just know that after i've been awake for 30 hours I love eating tacos, <laughs> so that is my light and fluffy obsession. Throw a little bit of salsa on it, some pineapples, which it doesn't sound like it'd be great on a taco, but oh my god, it is amazing. <laughs> so that is my obsession as it stands right now. Awesome. Yeah. Um, second last question is, um, mm -hmm. if someone found the work you're doing really interesting, they want to find out more about Chica, what she's up yeah. to, where can they find out more about you? Where can they reach out to you? Um. Okay. You can always go on my Twitter. There's uh, Chica at Chica Stacy Poet C H I K A. Link in the description below. Oh, okay. So I, I don't even. Yeah, I just spell it. Anyway. I'll spell it anyways. Okay, because people don't know how to spell my first name, middle name, or anything like that. So Chica C H I K A Stacy S T A C Y Poet P O E T. Yes, exactly. Um, my Instagram is Chica Stacy, spelt the same way. Um, I'd say LinkedIn, but I, I also... I had an Instagram. I was going to pull that up. Yeah, I have an Instagram, yeah. Um, and I'd also say LinkedIn, but I don't really use LinkedIn very... I feel like it's not as popular in medicine. Yeah, I noticed that too. It's, yeah, I think it might be changing, but... Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I have a LinkedIn. Uh, I don't like... It doesn't really have much on it, but people have definitely connected with me through LinkedIn. So I think Chica Stacey Oriwa is my LinkedIn if you just search for it. Um, but yeah, those are probably the best channels to connect with me through so i was actually yeah. gonna end it there but yeah usually i find people have interesting stuff on their instagram sure okay i don't know if you want me to pull this up i mean i hope i, I mean it is public but uh, it is public yeah right so like i but there's nothing, nothing really to hide yeah there's also nothing really here we can talk about i don't think yeah. already covered so i think we're good on that front are we good okay nothing good. i have not disgraced my parents so this is good um, <laughs> so final question for you is okay yeah it's a two part, or it's two questions. You can pick the one you want to answer. Okay. Which is if for someone watching this right now, and I, I try, I wanted to be as almost watch out. I won't put any constraints on you. Okay. So for someone watching this right now, if you want to leave them with one thought, or something to think about, one piece of advice, what would it be? Or if you were to write a letter to your younger self, Chica at whatever age, younger Chica, what would it be? Ooh, that's heavy. Um. Honestly, I would say trust the process. You know, there have been a lot of times, even now, even right now, where I have really doubted that things would work out as they should, or I have, like I said, faced a lot of failures, had a lot of doors close on me, and I have felt like that was the end of my story in this particular thing. There was a lot of times I was like, that was the end of my career in medicine, or that was the end of my journey in getting into medical school. But really just trust the process and be tenacious as hell. There's this one quote, um, I don't even remember who said it, I think it might have been Steve Jobs, and it's like, stay hungry, stay foolish. That is my favorite thing, and I live by that. Stay hungry in the sense of stay tenacious. Whatever it is that you want, you have got to put everything on the line for it and do it to the death of you, right? Um, whereas stay foolish is kind of, I like it because it's, it's kind of fun in the sense that like, if you believe that it's possible and that nothing can stop you from doing it, you're kind of like living in like this uh, idyllic kind of reality, then that is also going to become embedded in your tenacity and you will think well maybe i didn't get it this time but and it might be foolish for me to reapply to medical school but i'm going to stay foolish and i'm going to do it and despite the doubt that might be internal doubt or people telling you you can't do that it is crazy for you to think that you can write the mcat again or crazy for you to think that you can apply to this medical school for the fifth time there are people i know who i go to medical school who have literally applied to medical school five six years in a row 
And most people would tell them, you need to find another career because this is, how many times are you going to do this? Medical schools are what, like five years long itself anyway. So it's, yeah, it's like, it's like four years long. Yeah. So, but there are some people like, but that's what I'm saying. Like they were hungry for it. If you're hungry for it, you're going to do it. And if you're going to do it, despite the doubt that people have, the people have against you or that you might have in yourself, some people may label you as foolish, but sometimes it's that drive that you have in you to get that goal at, you know, irrespective of whatever barriers are present. So, and I still live by that. I mean, people have told me because of my advocacy that there are certain areas in medicine that I shouldn't pursue because of the nature of the work that I do can be seen as divisive because not everyone believes that there should be a black student application program. Not everyone believes that we should be talking about race in medicine, mm -hmm. but I believe it and I've been talking about it. And people told me, well, stay away from this residency program because they won't value the work that you're doing. And guess what? Those are the residency programs that I will be applying to Ooh, in the fall. Facts. And it might be foolish and some people will look at me and be like, that's a foolish thing to do. But it's like, guess what? I'm hungry and I will stay foolish and God willing, I will achieve these goals. So that is that is the little nugget, golden nugget of information that I hope to pass on to wow. future generations. Jewels dropped by Chica's <laughs> Yes. So on that awesome positive note, yeah. that concludes this episode of Atila TV. Thanks for watching. Subscribe. Catch us on YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. Thanks for watching. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you, Chica, so much. That was, that was really good. <laughs> Thank you. That was so much fun. Oh, my God. I loved it.